This is an ABC podcast. More and more of you are taking time out from your digital devices and embracing mindfulness to try and calm your mind. But what if digital technologies can also enhance contemplative practices and provide therapeutic benefits for, say, kids undergoing cancer treatment? I'm Paul Barclay, and on this Big Ideas, immersive technology and mindfulness. Contemplative traditions like meditation, mindfulness, yoga and prayer have ancient origins, but the modern digital world is creating new possibilities if you can't get to a mosque, church, temple or any contemplative space in person. Like guided meditation in a virtual natural environment able to lift your mood or a multi-sensory installation that soothes those in palliative care. Is immersive technology a genuine alternative to in-person connectedness and contemplation? This contemplation conversation is hosted by the Contemplative Studies Centre at the University of Melbourne. I'm talking with Associate Professor Zulaya Keskin from the Centre for Islamic Studies and Civilization. Effie Soropos, creator of Human Rooms for Mental Health and Wellbeing. Trent Clues de Costella, co-founder and CEO at Foria, a Melbourne-based extended reality studio. And technologist Dr Greg Wadley from the School of Computing and Information Systems at the University of Melbourne, who begins by discussing how technology can shape our emotions. Our technology does shape our emotions in complex and interesting ways. If you go back to the, the very first computers, they were very slow and very expensive, and the whole focus was on making the machine work efficiently. And no one cared about the user, and especially about the user's emotions or anything like that. But as computers became more uh, ubiquitous and more people were using them, it was realised that we need to focus on the efficiency of the user. And that's when you start getting a focus on designing user interfaces and on usability. And then as we transition into the 21st century, we see technologies like computers and other digital technologies escaping the workplace and going into our everyday lives, including our recreational and, and social lives, And then you get this interesting shift from usability and into user experience, which is more about how we emotionally interact with our technologies. Because now people are using technologies because they want to. And there's a focus on uh, designing for emotional experience, on emotional design. And some people are now starting to, to, including a team here at Melbourne, are studying how people now are using those technologies, which are very successfully designed for emotional experience, to shape, we we all use them now to shape our own emotions in in everyday life or to do emotion regulation, as psychologists call it. In parallel with that, the uh, psychology therapists have become interested in the fact that everyone now has a powerful computer and sensing device that they carry with them at all times. And this is interesting in delivering mental health therapies through these platforms, and this includes emotion regulation therapy, so we learn better to manage our emotional states. There's even computers that try to sense your emotions, so detect the emotions of their users, and it's hoped that this might make computers more uh, more useful and usable. I'll stop there. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was going to add, too, there's also 
lots of work in the area of neuroscience suggesting that the time we spend in front of these devices, in front of these screens, may well actually be rewiring our brains. Not the focus of this discussion, but just putting into context how this technology and the use of it is, is shaping how we think. And, and, and it strikes me as interesting that mindfulness and technology are coming together in this discussion, but they might appear to be rather in conflict, given that, you know, I think many of us may think we're spending rather too much time distracted by our smartphones and our mobile devices, and that uh, in part we are craving mindfulness practices because of the adverse emotional impacts of that technology. This is a discussion about how we can employ that technology to enhance our emotional well-being, so it's turning it back on itself. Are we right to be sceptical, just, just in terms of framing the discussion, are we right to be sceptical about a mindfulness practice that is to some extent dependent on technology? If not necessarily uh, sceptical, then at least we should be aware of, of the potential limitations of that, uh, in part for the reasons that you've just uh, suggested, right? So if the technology to some extent is the problem, if you think about the way people use technologies to, to deal with emotional situations, so there's kind of an in, a lot of intense distraction going on, and you see people who will be looking at uh, workplace technology on, on their big screen and they take a break by getting their little screen out and scrolling <laughs> through a, yep. a news feed. Um, people use this intense ability to distract that, that contemporary networked mobile platforms have mm. to essentially escape emotionally challenging situations or even just boredom. So if you look at people commuting on the train, everyone's got their phone out. Uh, people get onto a, a long-haul flight, the movies are on before we've even you know, left the, the tarmac. So mindfulness, insofar as I understand mindfulness, is in a way the opposite of that. You know, we, we should become more present in the moment and not be, just be distracting ourselves away every time we feel challenged or um, experiences or negatively balanced mm. emotion. So this, this sets up problems, right? So if, if you're using your phone uh, for a, a, a mindfulness training exercise, the temptation is only that far away, right? You're one swipe from scrolling through Facebook. Which we spoke about in a, a previous discussion for the Contemplative Study Centre, actually. Let me bring you into the discussion, Zalea. Uh, can you tell us about contemplative practices as they pertain to the Islamic tradition and the importance, I suppose, in the Islamic faith of people coming together in person in a physical space? Mm. Yeah, contemplative practice is very important and um, there would be many practices in the Islamic tradition which would fall under that category. Probably the main one I would say is the five daily prayers, but we do have others like going to Hajj, which is a pilgrimage to Mecca. Um, and there's also gatherings together called dhikr, which is like chanting, collective chanting. So all the, there are many, I guess, practices where coming together is quite important. So these practices, um, while they're, they're very spiritual in nature, they're also quite men like mentally stimulating but also social. And if we look at the five daily prayers as an example, I think of it as a combination of meditation and yoga in a way because it's the, the idea is there is a strong focus um, but there's also physical movements where you're bowing down, prostrating as part of the prayer. But in the Islamic tradition it's, doing that prayer collectively is very much encouraged. 
it's still personal, even when you're uh, doing it collectively, it's still very personal, but you're doing it side by side with people. And then also f adding further to that, then doing that collectively in the mosque. So location mm. also is even further encouraged. I guess a big part of that is because there's meant to be spiritual growth happening from that experience. And the idea of coming together is you're interacting with people that you would in everyday life, but you're in a way trying to manage that within yourself spiritually by connecting with people of all, all walks of life. So very interesting, like when you do the five daily prayers, for example, at the mosque, you're standing side by side, touch, literally touching, uh, unless they're uh, you know, meant to be touching shoulder to shoulder. And that's meant to be a very much like an equaling effect. It's like I'm standing side by side but with people of different walks of life. Even if the person next to you, you might have slight grudge against for whatever reason. It's your way of trying to deal with that and not allow that to affect your experience of your, you know, your prayers. So it really has a huge humbling effect. And um, Hajj is the same where everyone is basically doing the same practice collectively, but yet it's a very personal practice. And, and it's not just about the physical. I would say there's a big element of energy, like this I would call it spiritual energy, where doing something on your own, you generate, let's say, like a, I guess a, a, a candle, some light. But when you have a number of candles that are generating light, it benefits everyone who's present there. So that physical presence is, is very important. Effie, you're a visual artist and designer. You create meaningful, immersive environments for people in palliative care, uh, human rooms, you call these spaces. What do these environments look like? How do they work? And how can they support people who are dying? They're all in facilities such as hospitals and aged care facilities. And there's also one or two in a hospice and a community centre. And they tend to be like quite large rooms with an installation of a range of technology-based elements such as projection, video, uh, sound, lighting, and sometimes a system of, that will allow scent to be put into, into the space. Uh, depends on where it is and, and what the budget is and what the needs are of the, of the site, of the people who will be using the space. Mm. When you first walk into the space, they still look quite sterile usually because they are in a, a health facility, mm. especially the hospitals. But once you start to use the elements, the, the space transforms with those elements and creates visuals and atmosphere and, and start to support people through, through the fact that they notice that there are these elements happening. It's all run off an app from an iPad. The participants choose from a range of content, videos, sound content, lighting content, and smells, and, there are, and each facility also has different, other different elements as well, depending, on, again, on what they need. They can choose an environment. They have the control to choose an environment that suits them. My first couple of human rooms installations were in palliative care, and the, the reason why I started to make them was because of, the, of personal experience. Mm. When I was with my mother when she was dying with cancer, and so I became obsessed with the idea after that of how I could change a hospital room to be a more 
sort of calming and peaceful environment for people who were dying. Because you weren't happy with what you were seeing that your mother was going through. Yeah, that's right. The lights were really bright. This was quite a long time ago now, but the lights were really intense and bright. And I also thought the way that people were cared for was very intrusive and invasive and and the textures of the linen and the colours on the walls and, you know, I thought that it was exacerbating the suffering of not only my mum but the people who were there with her Mm. when she was dying. So my aim was to be able to create somewhere where you could change all of those elements to be more peaceful and to help people when they're when they're dying, but also um, to assist the family members and the carers and the friends who, when when people are dying, there tends to be a lot of people around. I mean, sometimes people die on their own with not many other family members or friends around, but generally there is a lot of family and friends and carers around and there can be, they're already starting to grieve for the person and there can be a lot of tension so the the way that it supports people is that it can help to reduce those elements. I've experienced um, being with people who have initially started to use a human room because and they're very angry and upset and fearful about dying. But I've seen people come to a place of acceptance through engaging with the content and being in a space where they can say whatever they're like. You know, I've heard a lot of stuff being said that people haven't been able to express. Trent, a little bit like Effie, you're you're using uh, virtual reality as a a tool for therapy and storytelling. Tell us a bit about the environments that you and your team are creating at the moment. Early days, we, we basically were playing with how we perceive space, thinking a little bit around how we break free from like 2D photographs and videos and how we can maybe have more of a human spatial understanding, you know, of the world. And at that point in time, VR was, wasn't really kind of in the mainstream arena just yet. And we were just looking at um, more specifically how we can digitize environments. So we did a lot of 3D scanning. And, and then I guess along the way, we, we started to uncover, you know, we had all this 3D information. And we're like, how can we give more control and agency to the user, you know, rather than say, you know, look at this, this is what we want you to perceive go free, you know, roam around and understand it, you know, as you would as if you're physically there. And that just instantly led us down the path of, of virtual reality. And I guess we, we had a bit of a serendipitous encounter. We did a little PR stunt and we had a reality TV show scan of the block. And we put this, uh, all the contestants through VR. And then uh, the next day, a family actually reached out to us and they were like, hey, our, our daughter's a huge fan of the show. Um, she's currently in palliative care fighting for her life, do you think you could bring this to her on a headset? And so we had a little VR headset and we dropped in the next day, met her parents. And uh, I guess that was a light bulb moment in many respects where it wasn't really something that we left with an intention to go out and kind of discover, but we just stumbled across seeing firsthand the power of the medium to transport people in a really sucky experience into literally anywhere else. Her father was just, you know, saw it as a tool for escape. Mm. And so I think with that in mind, set us on this journey. Well, if, you know, taking someone to a virtual house is mm. effective, what could we actually achieve if we were to create something with, you know, a little bit more of a therapeutic in- intention? And so that took us down this path where um, we started dropping VR headsets off at the 
Royal Children's Hospital in the early days, they were like, we don't know what this is going <laughs> to unleash. You know, we don't want it to give our um, patients epileptic seizures and things like that. And so we, we had a long, I think, collaborative journey to try and uncover a little bit more of a approachable and accessible means, you know, with safety in mind to design something that could be therapeutically beneficial. Yeah, basically in the, in the early days, we started collaborating with the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and we were looking at how we can really simply scale existing therapies. So the thought was, well, what if we could take things that aren't accessible for, say, someone going through bone marrow transplant? Could you create a animal-assisted therapy experience? And so we reached out to Zoos Victoria and then we started recording content with penguins and different types of little expeditions, making really distance accessible through a new medium. So we're talking here about 360-degree camera 3D that you then access through the headset for cancer patients in, in this case that you're talking about. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So I guess in, in the early days, 360 hardware wasn't really accessible. It was a series of GoPros that people stitched yep. together. But now there's actually a little camera in the front row there that's um, able to capture 6K 360 content. And, and really with that, it gives you the ability to sit in one location and, and look all around and try and really get in tune, you know, with that more, I think, felt lived experience. And so that really, I think, sparked a pretty, pretty magical journey for us. And, and we've been looking at a whole bunch of different other applications since then not just as a tool for escape, but thinking about maybe simulating patient treatments before they step foot inside the hospital and maybe making things, you know, a little bit more accessible for people that maybe don't have the luxury of, of getting out to the always for the weekend. And mm. also, I think lastly, is just personalising the content for viewers. This is, is on mute, but it's just a 15-minute guided meditation that we made with uh, Swinburne University. And so the, the thought was you could choose your own destination and then you could personalize your own narrative. So you have your own voiceover if you like a kind of more masculine or more feminine energy voice. And then have a really simple guided journey that just takes you through the environment and helps you tune in with certain things like the leaves blowing in the wind or just mm -hmm. watching the, the water, you know, bubble the by in the, the surrounding creek. So it's been a, a really fun adventure. Mm. Still a lot to learn, definitely. Just before I, I move on, Trent, what impact did this have on the kids who had cancer? Did you get feedback about whether they felt it was helpful for them and so on? Yeah, absolutely. Like the very first anecdotal response we had from that family that we connected with, instantly they just saw an emotional attitude pick up. You know, she was talking about it to all the doctors and nurses as they were coming through. We then realised, you know, really empirical research was what was needed and still is, you know, heavily required. And so we started looking at, more or less, yeah, how could we personalise the content to have higher efficacy in terms of engagement? And so the thought was you could, if you like nature, you could sit in nature. If you preferred animals, you could go hang out with animals. And really what, what's revealed itself in time is it's really a, a gateway of sorts to start the practice. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the main challenges, especially for people in today's day and age, is distraction and how do we really remove that? And so one of the powers of virtual reality is when you're sitting there, you can't actually look anywhere else. You're fully immersed in it. And so that does kind of melt away certain things, maybe like the kids running around in the background, you know, banging pots and pans. And then I think um, alongside that, yeah, we definitely measured just 
greater signs of well-being and emotional attitude. And we have a couple of research papers that um, Swinburne and MCRI have led, so it's great to actually see that come out. And we also benchmarked it against um, other interventions. So how did it compare, for instance, versus just listening to music or watching something on your iPad? And so, yeah, we definitely found the ability to commit and follow through in terms of actually like maintaining the practice was much greater in the VR intervention than something such as just listening to a soundtrack of sorts. Interested, Zalea, in what you make of, of this and do you think that inner peace and a, a genuine sense of spiritual energy, if you like, can be translated through the types of virtual realities that Trent's been talking about there? I guess uh, from my perspective, it would definitely benef benefit and have a positive impact. I think especially for those who don't have the access, we're talking about like in palliative care and, uh, and you know, I guess if for someone who doesn't have that ability to go out and see the nature, it's actually a wonderful opportunity to be able to bring that to, uh, to them. I guess my, uh, you know, as, as the conversation is taking place, my concern is what if that replaces the reality based on habits? That, that is what would, I guess, concern me because to me it's, these are experiences but the real experience is more than just seeing. I guess to me the experience is uh, witnessing, the witnessing the real thing with the unpredictability of whether it's the weather, uh, the wind, those who you're with. So to me experiences are very encompassing of so many factors uh, and complexities and that in a way is reflective of life. Life is gotten complexities and these kind of journeys of whether it's meditation or contemplation in a way mimic our ex life experiences or that I would think that they should. I do feel in an ideal world where we are able to go out and about and do these things in the real world they, they do fall short but it, you know if I'm at work and I need a 20-minute timeout, I might not be able to go to the Yuyang Rangers to do a bit of a walk or reflection which you know, although I did on Saturday because I had three, four hours to, you know, that I could commit, but I can't do that when I'm at work. So there are definitely circumstances where it will benefit and contribute to mental, uh, mental health, to inner peace. But I always worry that it's, not, it's going to be the what, just like with uh, social media being our only means of social interaction, when that happens, mm. it becomes a problem. Uh, but, but Greg, I'm interested in the science of this, of the science of virtual reality in a sense. Is virtual reality tricking the brain into feeling like it's a more lived experience? What's, what's going on there? VR is tricking the brain, but, it, but it's using a trick that painters have been using for many years. It's the kind of perspective, right? So if you've got objects in a scene, you can calculate the, uh, if you know, the geometry of how light's reflecting off the objects and how that falls upon the retina. You can sort of figure out how that image should look. So computer graphics does this in a mathematical way. Uh, so you have virtual objects in a virtual scene and you can work out the angles that it should appear and you basically draw a retina on, on your Xbox screen or whatever and computers can do this very quickly, faster than a painter. And so you can allow, in a video game, you allow the user to, to uh, rotate and translate their avatar and every move sort of causes that screen to redraw in real time. And this starts to appear realistic. Now, VR is taking that a step further, so we take that image off the, the Xbox and we put it right up in front of your face, so you can't really see anything else. But furthermore, now we're tracking the, the head movements. So instead of you moving a, an avatar around with your mouse or something, now we're detecting whether the person's rotating 
their head around whatever axis or even, even translating, so moving around the room in a good system, you're getting your, your view of the scene redrawn in real time as you move. And that's a very compelling experience. You really feel, they use the word presence a lot in the research literature, so you really feel as though you've been transported to this different place. So in some therapies, that's, that's really good, right? If you're in a hospital, any place is better and, and you can choose a really great experience that's, that's better than what's there. Uh, the similar thing is going on with, uh, with the audio, so you can mm. get the directionality of the audio. People are experimenting with smell. So talked about smell before and, and touch. I was just thinking, though, that, you know, the, the problem with discussions like these is they can become rather binary, real life on the one hand, virtual experiences on the other. I mean, is there, though, a kind of a space in between here, do you think, Greg, where basically immersive virtual reality is actually complementing the real-life experience rather than, in a sense, replacing it? Yeah, well, all technology experiences are a little bit fake, right? I mean, if you're having Friday night Zoom drinks... Yeah, well, you're really we, all, we all remember, don't we? Friends? Yeah. <laughs> but... Compensating that, there are conveniences. You know, technology defeats distance and time problems. And, and so every time you choose to phone somebody instead of going around to visit them, you're making this kind of trade-off between a, a virtual interaction or a, a real-world interaction. With VR, because VR is still a fairly new experience for most of us, I also think that there's a, a kind of cultural suspicion of, of virtual Mm. environments. Uh, Philosophers for years have sort of talked, uh, I think it was a Descartes who wondered whether there might be an evil demon uh, manipulating one's senses so that we can't really know what we're seeing. Perhaps somebody's manipulating what we're we're seeing and feeling, etc. And then more uh, recently, philosophers have talked about evil scientists, a a brain in a vat where you're feeding electricity (laughs) in. and, And so... Maybe we aren't here now. Maybe we actually are in some matrix-like virtual environment and we, and we don't really know. So we're, so we're all getting that suspicion through our pop culture mm. and, and so forth. And so I think that there's probably some resistance to VRs perhaps going a step too far in, in how yeah. uh, virtualized our lives might become. We can't entirely disprove the fact <laughs> that we are possibly not here, uh, that we are figments of our imagination. But the other thing, Effie, that, that strikes me is that, okay, there, there is real life, which we, which we privilege in a sense, but some real life environments are rather grey and dull and uninspiring. And these are the environments that you're working in and you're working to do something about. Hospitals, for example, I mean, they're real, but they're also drab. And in some cases, well, I find them quite depressing places, actually. Do you think that something like human rooms, I mean, could you foresee a time, for example, or would you like to foresee a time when there are spaces like this in all hospitals that people can escape to? I appreciate you asking me that question. Thank you very much. So it's not an opportunity for me to make a pitch, though. To be honest, people have said that to me many times over the years when they've been talking to me about the experience that they've had in a human room. You know, the question I've heard a lot is, why don't all hospitals have a space like this? There was a time when there were churches, chapels, most commonly placed in hospitals, and then that transpired into more kind of non-denominational spaces for people to go for prayer and contemplation. 
but bringing the whole idea of a human room type concept to the patient or to the resident with the family together, that's a different thing altogether. And um, I guess from that perspective, the, I've made quite a few of them now and it is at a place now where it's scalable mm. and there is a model and it's scalable and I can put it into any type of environment and then make a non-homogenous content base for it. Mm. So each site is specifically designed for the end users. You know, like just going to listening to what Trent was saying about the, the, the beauty of, of just being in simple environments that you can just sit and be in. And that's how a lot of the, the videos are devised, for example, for human rooms. They're, they're based on memory and experiences of the end users. There's a, there's a whole kind of research component that, and development component that goes prior to the content being made mm-hmm. where I work with the, the commissioning body, the, the community or the, you know, who, who the end users are going to be to find out what their most favourite places, spaces are, memories, colours, music, sound... The, the first spaces that I made came about as a result of me going and, and finding funding and, and negotiating with the hospitals to try all this experimental space. And, and then after that, people started to ask me if I could develop a space for them. With the case of, because there, there are human rooms now in community hospices, palliative care, cancer care, um, that came about through the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Centre, she wanted to have a human room in the palliative care ward of the ONJ, as we call it. And then with um, dementia spaces, which I've been making for the last, say, 10 years or so, that came about as a result of a Churchill Fellowship that I had undertaken where I was investigating the possibility of creating culturally specific human rooms for residents in dementia care. Mm. Trent, if I can come to you, because you're doing some fascinating work, mapping the Great Barrier Reef, one of our threatened ecosystems in Australia, one of the most remarkable ecosystems in the world. I wonder whether the story here is that people are sufficiently able to experience the reef virtually such that it inspires them to advocate more forcefully for the protection of it and uh, for more action to conserve it? Or, or could it be, on the other hand, that the VR version of the reef is actually so convincing that people don't really worry about the real reef anymore? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very thought-provoking question. <laughs> kind of live and work in these paradoxical worlds of using technology to connect people with nature and the instrument is made from precious minerals that are harvested from, you know, sacred ecosystems. So it's something that we struggle a lot to reconcile mm. and understand our role. You know, we, we work with organisations like Meta and, you know, they definitely drive a lot of great innovation and, you know, are also probably have a massive, you know, public sceptical approach and, you know, their values and intentions. So it's something we try and navigate, I think, mindfully. Um, often when we talk about what it is that we do, people reference uh, a Black Mirror episode that they saw and it's <laughs> often post-apocalyptic world where we're all living in these virtual headsets and we've completely forgot to take action and it kind of feels like the 
same barrel of the gun we're staring down right now. Because your ambition is to create these virtual reality experiences as real as they can possibly be. So if you achieve that end, you are almost, in a sense, perhaps arguably rendering the real version less important. I don't know. Yeah, I guess it's definitely worth, worth considering and diving into this a bit further. I suppose um, specifically when we were looking at working in the Great Barrier Reef, we were working with a natural history production unit based out of Bristol called Silverback Films. So they do a lot of David Attenborough's productions and they were partnering with us. We, we knew we wanted to create a VR series around stories of hope, specifically across you know different ecosystems around the world. And we were planning to film underwater and we were like, okay, well, where else better in the world than the Great Barrier Reef? And I'll never forget the moment we're in the boardroom looking at potential stories and we're talking to Silverback and uh, they were like, there's nothing really there to celebrate. It was like a really weird, daunting moment where it was like they'd already acknowledged that it had been lost. And this is back in 2019. And at that point in time, you're kind of pinching yourself and you're like, wait a second, like, why aren't we screaming from the rooftop if this is already, you know, something that we have conceded upon? And so, yeah, we, we didn't actually end up filming there at that point in time. We went somewhere else in um, West Papua in Indonesia. But then, yeah, recently the work that we're doing now at the reef is a little bit different. And so this is all around, you know, digitizing the reef as a way to understand how it's changing. And going in, yeah, we we're reading a lot of the research. 90% of the reefs that's been measured is showing signs of coral bleaching. But I must admit, you know, when we got there, yeah, there, there was so much to celebrate and so much mm. beauty to behold, so much resilience taking place that I also felt like I'd kind of subscribed a little bit too much to the doom and gloom rhetoric in terms of, you know, acknowledging the, the loss of this sacred site. And so, yeah, by no means, I think, are we trying to create something that's as good as the real thing, but I think there's a lot of merit in it being the next best thing mm. and creating specifically access to these environments that not many people really have the privilege to get to. You know, a lot of people look at the ocean, but you don't really have a chance to look underneath it. And when you think about things like scuba diving, you know, it's a luxury. And so we've been doing a lot since then. Um, where we've seen when we launched this series um, recently called Ecosphere, we were getting comments from just families saying, my daughter just watched uh, your underwater episode and now she wants to be a marine biologist. And we're seeing these comments come through where yeah, it creates a bit more of a connection, I think, for people that really haven't had any chance to do so. Mm. And it is a means, I think, to create something that is inspiring because if we do just acknowledge that it's lost, then I don't actually think we're going to, have to do anything about it. Mm. And so I really do believe and hope that it's just a bridge. You know, it's kind of a, a little spark that might, you know, light the incentive and motivation in someone to actually take the next step and connect with that environment maybe not go, oh, I need to go out now because I've just been to the rainforest, but actually go, that's an amazing rainforest. I'd love to plan a trip to get there. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. that's at least our intention where we hope to take it. And, and Zalea, you've been talking about how in, in your faith, in-person practice humbles the ego in a sense. Uh, and you've been hearing a lot about the digital alternatives to that. I mean, how, how are you responding? Are they a pale imitation of the real thing? Are they a distraction? Do they make you feel uncomfortable? I do think they do have a place for certain practices, like, uh, uh, you know, when you're reflecting, like Tefekuri is an important, where you reflect on nature. So immersing yourself in VR, through VR on nature, it can have definitely a positive effect. 
But even when we're talking about, say, with the Hajj, the, like going to um, Kaaba, it's really interesting because Kaaba is really a cube-like building. It's got a black cloth on it. It doesn't look very exciting. And I've never been, actually. I've seen pictures of it. But those I know who have been, they say it's just such an atmosphere when you get there. Like, you know, they talk about how they start get get emotional and they get teary. When I look at it, I just think it's pretty nice cube-like shape, you know, mm. that's what it is. So the, it's got those shortfalls. And, again, when you go to somewhere like that, like Mecca, and you're doing the pilgrimage, you're with, it's about two, three million people, maybe it's about two million now, that are, because of limiting numbers, that's a limited version. <laughs> <laughs> So you're like shoulder to shoulder again with millions of people who are wearing white shrouds because that's the idea, you're all wearing white cloths. Um, so you all have an equaling effect again, which is humbling on the ego. If you're some, if you're some celebrity person, you, you look just like someone who's come mm. from a village. So you can't really capture that problem in a, a VR, I feel, because I could still wear my white cloths around me, but no one's seeing me. Um, no one's witnessing me. With that, whereas if I'm there and I'm wearing simple clothing, but I'm some multimillionaire, that they are witnessing my humility and that's humbling my ego. Mm. So it's those kind of, I guess, added factors which make the real experience. Um, and the presence quite in the, the the architectural space yeah. that you were just mm. talking about—that's a important experience that you go through being in that physical architectural space. That's that right. right, yeah, because everything has symbolism. So being there physically or even being able to touch um, or to witness it with your, you know, physical eyes, everything is symbolic. And it's all about then understanding, interpreting, evaluating, what does this mean to me? What does that mean to me? And seeing it from different angles or, or also even being with others and t- saying, what does this mean to you? Having that kind of interactive communication with those around you. And seeing things from other people's eyes, I think that's another very important part of collective contemplation. So there's a lot of beauty in that social interaction that takes place where there's architecture to talk about and to experience. I mean, you've been talking a lot about the primacy of the in-person physical experience. How then did you find the lockdown and (laughs) practising your Islamic faith during that lockdown where obviously the types of things that you've been speaking about, being physically close Mm. was not possible. And you did, I'm assuming, have to resort to some sort of virtual substitutes. What was your experience of that? It it was quite different and it was quite difficult. Actually, one of my students, uh, we we were having classes and he said, the month of Ramadan is the holiest month of the year. And he said, uh, he said, oh, you know, this is the first time in 20 years where I won't be going to the mosque during the month of Ramadan. I could hear the pain in his voice. Uh, so it was quite difficult. We did try to replace it with Zoom sessions, like having a Zoom spiritual night. <laughs> to some degree, it helps. There is still some level of connection that does take place when you have those, I guess, online interactions. But it definitely falls short of having the physical. But you try to make do with what you have in those situations. Uh, or you, you turn to practices which are more in, uh, much more individual, like the meditation style, which um, you do on your own. But it does definitely impact on the quantity, the quality uh, of the practices that are taking place. Yeah. We are social beings, I think, mm. and we do draw energy from each other. And when that's not there, when it can be, it has an impact on us, yeah. Mm. 
Greg, more and more people are concerned about the maladaptive use of, uh, of some of these technologies. One social media giant was recently accused of approving an inappropriate advertisement targeting young teens interested in extreme weight loss. And uh, this ad featured a, a woman in a bikini asking teens if they were summer ready. How will we cope when advertisers inevitably try to use some of this newer technology that we're talking about today in in much the same way? Ads have been manipulating us for a long time, uh, uh, manipulating our behaviour and how we feel, and and ads have have often exploited our uh, anxieties or um, bad stereotypical thinking and, and so forth. TV ads have tried to convince people to smoke and, and mm. drink and gamble and, and so forth. What uh, online ads and social media ads have an advantage that, that prior forms of advertising didn't have, which is they know who you are. Yeah. And they know a lot about you. And if you've ever placed a Facebook ad and see the menu of options that you get to choose, it's remarkable how, how precisely you can say who I want to see this ad. Once advertising goes into VR, I guess it's kind of partly there already, there may be extra advantages that that the advertiser has because, uh, well, one prominent VR manufacturer also runs a a prominent social media app. And so if you you take your user identity across, well, they, they know a lot about you. But the VR, of course, is tracking your movements and your responses to things. So it could have a very intimate knowledge of who you are and what what you're reacting to and how you're emotionally reacting to different things. Uh, Because you feel as though you're in a space, perhaps the advertisement could be placed in the space in a way that is more engaging or more impactful. You could be placed in the ad in a a little story Mm. where subtly perhaps um, you're being influenced in a way that perhaps you, you weren't aware. Effie, I interrupted you when you were talking about dementia and your work in that space before. Uh, Nostalgia, we know, is a very strong emotion and we know that it can have meaningful effects for people experiencing dementia. You're currently, I think, working with Indigenous communities in Uluru. Uh, How do you use nostalgia and other elements to support people with dementia? Yeah, well, the project in Uluru is specifically for the the people that come from the area. So that's Ananu people and the residents of the facility that I'm working with. They live in a community called Murujulu, which is the community next to Uluru. The elders in with dementia include the traditional owners of Uluru. So I specifically engaged with the Ananu and with the staff of the facility to recreate the experience as much as possible of going to country, which is the most important thing for them, is to, to be on country. So the, the videos provide them the memory or the revisiting of places that they would have spent their days and their lives visiting and being a part of, such as the waterhole, the caves, the certain times of the year when it rains, you know, and then trying to recreate smells, for example, that try to emulate the big rain when it comes. You know, that was a that was something that, you know, we had to work with as well just to try and get that experience for them. Mm-hmm. I've just returned, like, in the last few days from installing this project and after 
after the installation was completed a week ago, the residents started coming into the room straight away and using it straight away. And I could, you know, I could see that they were immediately getting the, the effect of seeing these places, these videos, experiencing these environments through the lighting and the sound as well. The sound that we're using is predominantly existing recordings of music that they've always loved, um, as well as recordings of Inmar, which is like their kind of storytelling party kind of recordings. And some of the recordings that we've used have have been made with the residents um, Mm. because there is a concern uh, similar to what Trent was talking before, there's a big concern about the cultural, the language and the the oral history and the memories of the people going with the current generation yeah. who are in aged care. So we've also been recording their stories and we've put that into the system as well so that they can re-listen to the um, the stories of their, like the Seven Sisters, for example, which is their most important story story of creation and the seven sisters and the space has also got other elements happening that is specific specifically for them such as installing a wall like a shelving system where we could put artifacts that they would be able to re-engage with artifacts from their daily lives we've installed a dirt box which is enables them to like draw draw stories and, and messages in the dirt which is something that they're used to you know doing in in daily life as well. We've also facilitated them being able to use bush medicine and most of the women who are artists, who are established artists in their own right, are also have started to paint the floor. I just had the floor painted in a base colour, a reddish base colour, and now they've started to paint their stories on the floor so that eventually the whole room, the whole floor will be will have the stories there as well that they can also re-engage with. So it's it's still a work in progress. Mm. And, and a point that I'd like to make about human rooms specifically is that I definitely develop human rooms, but that's not enough. Once the room is installed, it then takes the champions of, this, of the facility, the, the staff and the carers and the families, they then take it over and it becomes their, their kind of space, their stories. And so it's not going to work unless people continue to work with it and develop it and, mm. and use it. It Over needs time. to evolve and it needs to, like, become theirs. Mm. Um, you know, and that, so. would mean, that would mean changing the elements a bit, changing the audio, visual, soundscape, what yeah, physical we do space, change, light. Yeah, yeah, we do change content because I set them up in such a way that they can be remotely supported by either myself or the technicians that I work with. And, and another challenge in... Medicine at the moment, Trent, is is pain and pain relief. And we've seen a lot of problems stemming from too much reliance on drugs to deal with pain. Uh, Your team have developed distraction-based interventions for those undergoing painful procedures in hospitals. And distraction can be helpful, I understand, for short procedures, but not necessarily that useful for longer-term issues like chronic pain. Just walk us through some of the, how you balance, I suppose, the pros and cons of, of tech-based methods to, to balance these two opposites, if you like. Your question reminds me just recently, uh, I was at the dentist and uh, I was really grateful that there was a TV suspended to the roof <laughs> so I could try and avoid 
a giant needle mm. injected into my gums and yeah. <laughs> get lost with these cat videos. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's definitely a really, really good question to, to contemplate and it also makes me think of Effie's work. And I could definitely listen to it all day and I wish I could go there and see some of these rooms in, in person because... I can arrange it. Yeah, that would be great. Look forward to it. Um, but yeah, and in relation to the balance of like, you know, distraction being a, a flash in the pan, fleeting little you know moment that isn't necessarily ingrained to long-term behavioral change right there's an amazing uh, startup that also came through melbourne university called smiley scope and i think targeting it in the right format such as using um, virtual reality for children that have needle stick phobia right that's what smiley scope do and it's an amazing solution that doesn't have to have a long long format because it's only you know a couple minutes and then it's done so i think finding the right scenario and setting to then actually explore the use of the medium. But I thought I might just touch on a couple other examples because it doesn't just have to be a distraction. Yeah, hearing Effie speak, we, we've recently just done a VR documentary uh, with the Bangarang mob up in um, Wangaratta with the Wangaratta Art Gallery and it's called Bichawaka. And it's actually about the process of Indigenous cool burning or cultural burning and really looking at VR as a, a vessel to have more of a transmission of, of knowledge between generations. And so we work with the elders there and we're able to really just capture the, the practice and process of, of how they really maintain uh, the land. And, you know, using this as, a, as an instrument, I think, is, is an amazing catalyst to then have really like greater accessibility, you know, across uh, generations and something that once you've captured it or documented it once, it kind of lives on indefinitely and can be interpreted in different ways. We also did an amazing project at the Peter Mack Hospital around... Yeah, radiotherapy treatment. And so that wasn't so much, you know, distraction as much as it was recreating the journey of your going to an MRI machine before you actually step foot inside the hospital. And we found, um, interestingly, that VR was actually a bit of a social catalyst. So they took the headset home after they saw their doctor. They then showed their parents that also alleviated a lot of their anxiety. They actually took it to school to then actually show their classmates what they're actually going through. So I think a bit of empathy in that respect. And there was a huge reduction, I think, in the anxiety and the need to actually put the patients under GA. And so that actually has a massive impact in terms of reducing health economics because it's a lot easier to maintain a conscious patient than a, you know, one that's anaesthetized. Uh, and one of the things I think we haven't really spoken much about today is the issue of this technology and its use uh, for people with you know, generalised mental health conditions. Greg, one of the ideas in mindfulness is that you view your thoughts as being, to some extent, separate, external from, from you, so that you, could, you can distance themselves, you can see them appearing and disappearing, and uh, this can help you deal with, with some of those problematic thoughts. How is technology helping people with some mental health issues do this? I've worked on a project where we're using VR to help people deal with exactly this problem. So this is with a, a youth mental health clinic. So these are young people. And they're people with mental health conditions that mean that they have these recurring troublesome thoughts or uh, automatic negative thoughts, is what psychologists call them. And the, the mindfulness approach to therapy for that is that the young person perceive these thoughts as just kind of coming and going and not being a part of them. They don't need to sort of dwell on any particular one. They'll come and go. To help that practice, the therapists often use a metaphor like, you know, your thoughts are 
you're, you're by a river and the thoughts are like leaves that are floating down or whatever. But a lot of, a lot of young people, especially ones with a mental health problem, don't really quite get these metaphors very mm. well. They're not very successful. And so this project is a kind of simple idea, but we just try and visualise the metaphor. So you put the VR headset on and you can tailor it so that the, the young person's specific thoughts, the ones that are bothering them, are written on objects that can sort of float in and out of view. This is still an exploratory stage. We've done it with balloons. So we had these balloons that are kind of floating in and out of, in and out of view. The VR is used in, in other mental health therapies as well. So it's been used a lot in exposure therapy. Mm -hmm. If someone has a phobic reaction to a particular circumstance, before VR, you had to sort of take them to that circumstance. There's fantastic papers about spider phobia therapy, which is horrifying for me to even mm, read. Yeah. Right? But now you can do it in VR. There's no real spider anymore and, or heights or, or, or things like that. A, a project which is similar idea to exposure therapy, not exactly the same thing that I've been helping with recently, is for young people who hear voices. So mm. some people hear a, a hallucination of a voice. Uh, this voice feels very real to them, although it is a hallucination. And often the voice is saying very, very nasty things, uh, very confronting things to the young person. Uh, so what this therapy is doing is that, first of all, the young person works with the therapist to create an avatar that represents that voice, that they feel this, this is the character. It's like a fictitious character, right? But they feel this is the character that is saying this voice to me. And then the therapist uses voice-altering technology to sort of embody that avatar and start saying these things to the young person. So it's acting a little bit like an exposure therapy, right? You're now in control of when you're having this experience. You're there in a clinical setting. There's someone there who can help you. And the young person can furthermore be trained to respond effectively to that character. So you can see videos of this on YouTube. It's fantastic to watch. So the young person will challenge the the character and say, hey, stop stop saying those things. You know, mm. These are not true. I don't accept what you're saying. I've been discussing immersive mindfulness with Zalea Keskin, Effie Soropos, Greg Wadley and Trent Clues de Castella. That contemplation conversation was hosted by the Contemplative Studies Centre at the University of Melbourne. More details are available on the Big Ideas homepage. That's it for today. I'm Paul Barclay. Thanks for listening. Until next time, bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.